good morning, Nanceman River Baptist Church. Uh, I bring greetings from Redemption Heights Church. Um, I was a little disappointed that Pastor Brian didn't reenact those that ribbon dance with his praise ribbons, so maybe we can work on that next week uh, if that's possible. Uh, but I do want to bring greetings from Philadelphia. Um, we are your, uh, the church that you planted. Uh, people ask me all the time, how do you succeed as a church plant? And I, I tell them there's three basic keys to success. First, you got to get yourself a Whitney. I have a Whitney. I'm not sure if the rest of you guys have a Whitney. Those of you who know my wife, Whitney, know that if you can put up with me, you'll love her. That's the way that works. Second, you got to get yourself a James. He's the other pastor of our church. He was ordained here at Nansman River. Uh, again, if you can put up with me, you'll love James. And third, you need to get yourself a Nansman River. Uh, you guys are not just a sending church, you're a staying church. And I can tell that because of how many people um, have already said hello to me, how many text messages I've already received as I've been here. In many ways, I still feel like I am an extension of the pastoral ministry here. And so with that, we will jump into Ecclesiastes 7 through 11. You heard that right. Pastor Ryan uh, decided that I needed to cover more than 25% of the book of Ecclesiastes in one sermon. Now, he said it nicely. He said, I think you can handle it, but a part of me feels like this is payback for his very first trip to West Africa from Nansman River when I was the family pastor, and I thought it'd be a great idea to put an air horn under his office chair, and I didn't realize that he was going to come back directly to the office from the airport after more than a day of travel and sit down in it. Uh, he yelled my name, Mark Turner, but it sounded like a curse word, the way he said it, and so I think this might be his payback, and so I, I, I see what you did, Ryan, and I appreciate it. Uh, and so we're going to be covering not every verse because we would be here till he returns from his sabbatical, um, but we are going to be covering a selection of verses, kind of looking at the major themes of Ecclesiastes 7 through 11 and trying to understand what it has for us from God's word. A few weeks ago, I was scheduled to be a chaperone on my fifth grade son's long-awaited trip to Washington, D.C. They had gotten tickets uh, they'd gotten approved for us to go on a tour of the White House. We'd had a capital tour approved. We were going to go to the African-American Heritage and Cultural Museum. Uh, they had raised money. We were excited. Everything led up to this moment of us going on this trip. So we get to his school in West Philadelphia at 530 in the morning, and the bus broke down. So you have a bus full of disappointed fifth graders, frustrated chaperones, and teachers who are a little upset. And so I sat there for a little while. By about 8 o'clock, they realized we're going to miss our tour. There's no point in us going at this point. Uh, we're going to cancel the field trip. And I thought for a second, I know what I feel like doing. I know what I think. But I tell people all the time that nothing surprises God. Ever think about this? God has never been interrupted once in his life. He didn't look at that field trip and go, man, you got me. And so I thought, okay, God, if this isn't a, a surprise for you, then I'm going to make the most of this moment. So I have the day off. I'm scheduled to be here. Jackson, let's get in the car. We headed to Baltimore. We went to the, the National Aquarium. Uh, we spent the day together. And God ended up giving me one of the best days with my son that I've ever had. Sometimes when life is full of broken things and challenges and limitations, if we will stop for a moment, accept the reality of what's going on and look to God, we can find that he still has a plan and a purpose for that moment. In Ecclesiastes 7 through 11, if I were to sort of sum up what's going here on here, I would say that living in a broken world means accepting the reality of its brokenness, accepting our own limitations, 
but learning to enjoy and trust God's plan anyway. Now, the book of Ecclesiastes, just for a moment, you've probably heard this from all of your guest speakers, uh, but this is not the easiest book to preach. It has some strange sayings in the book. Today in chapter 11, we will see a fun little moment where it says, and if a tree falls to the south or to the north, in the place where the tree falls, there it will lie. Thanks, Captain Obvious. Uh, We got that. You didn't even tell us if it made a sound. In, in chapter 9, verse 8, it says, Let your garments be always white. Let not oil be lacking on your head. I think that means you need to dress nice and have some good cologne. In chapter 7, verse 16, it tells us, Be not overly righteous and do not make yourself too wise. If I had read this as a middle schooler, I would have reminded my parents, Look, the Bible told me not to be too good. Okay, I gotta, we got to dial it back a little bit. It, it's kind of confusing when we look at these sometimes apparently contradictory statements in Ecclesiastes because we know what the gospels remind us. Jesus tells us, for example, that we shouldn't worry about money or food because God will provide. We, we actually shouldn't care too much about what we look like here on this earth because we should be laying up for ourselves treasures in heaven. So if we're gonna look at Ecclesiastes, we certainly have to recognize this. Uh, One of the most helpful things to understand is that in this book, there are actually two voices. There's the preacher, where we get the name Ecclesiastes. Uh, This preacher, who gives us this wisdom that can sometimes be an enigma, is one voice. And then we have a narrator, this other voice. The preacher can sometimes even appear like a complainer making observations about the absurdity of life. That's why I think we like him so much because we get uh, the breaks in every once in a while to offer a divine perspective. So I think it's important that the first thing we notice in reading the book of Ecclesiastes is that there's a context of who's speaking. Is it the preacher or the narrator? The, The text isn't always perfectly clear, but we can discern something. Secondly, it's a book that fits into the larger biblical story. And so actually at the end of Ecclesiastes, I'm stealing from Pastor James, who I just mentioned, he'll be here in a couple weeks. He he gets to preach chapter 12. But at the end of the story, at the end of Ecclesiastes, in chapter 12, verses 13 and 14, it says this, the end of the matter, all has been heard, fear God and keep his commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. For God will bring every deed into judgment with every secret thing, whether good or evil. That sort of sums up how the narrator responds to the preacher with these sort of confusing statements. So if we can kind of dive in and get past some of the confusing statements, we can see, I think, three important things from Ecclesiastes verses, or chapter 7 through 11. We'll look at a selection from chapter 7. We'll look at a selection from chapter 8. And then we'll look at a selection from chapter 11. The first thing we're going to look at in chapter 7 in verses 20 through 29 is this idea that God's creation is good by design, but bad by direction. Here's what it says in chapter 7, verse 20. It says, surely there is not a righteous man on earth who does good and never sins. Do not take to heart all the things that people say, lest you hear your servant cursing you. Your heart knows that many times you yourself have cursed others. All this I have tested by wisdom. I said, I will be wise, but, what, but it was far from me. That which has been is far off and deep, very deep. Who can find it out? 
I turned my heart to know and to search out and to seek wisdom and the scheme of things and to know the wickedness of folly and the foolishness that is madness. And I find something more bitter than death, the woman whose heart is snares and nets and whose hands are fetters. He who pleases God escapes her, but the sinner is taken by her. Behold, this is what I found, says the preacher, while adding one thing to another to find the scheme of things, which my soul has sought repeatedly, but I have not found. One man among a thousand I found, but a woman among all these I have not found. See, this alone I found, that God made man upright, but they have sought out many schemes. We're not going to focus mainly on the difference between men and women in this part. We'll let uh, Pastor Chris preach that on Mother's Day next year. But we are going to see the overall point here, starting in verse 20, that surely there is not a righteous man on earth who does good and never Sins. Now that might seem like a basic statement for any of us who have grown up in church or any of us who have raised children, but in our culture today, it is heresy to say that we are not essentially good, we are essentially broken. In Psalm 53, the psalmist says, the fool says in his heart, there is no God. They are corrupt doing abominable iniquity. There is none who does good. God looks down from heaven on the children of man to see if, they, if there are any who understand who seek after God. They have all fallen away. Together they have become corrupt. There is none who does good, not even one. All of us are infected by sin. We might not be as bad as we could be, but we are all sufficiently tainted by sin to where we cannot earn our way to God. I think growing up, I, I grew up on the King James Version of the Bible, and I think Solomon in the KJV in 1 Kings 8 puts it best. There is no man who sinneth not. This is the doctrine of original sin. All of us are sinners. And it's a very important leveling doctrine because it says that all of us are bound together in sin, which means all of us need to repent from the greatest to the least of us. King and pauper alike, one writer says. Now, this has been unnerving to some. The Duchess of Buckingham objected to George Whitfield's relentless preaching of universal sin because it is monstrous to be told you have a heart as sinful as the common wretches that crawl on the earth. But that's the truth. That's the beauty of the gospel. That it is not your education, it is not your intelligence, it is not your pedigree that earns your way to God. All of us before God are equally sinful in need of his grace. And so we can either ignore that or we can accept it. Verses 21 and 22 that we read said this, do not take to heart all the things that people say. <laughs> we could preach a whole sermon on that. Lest you hear your servant cursing you, your heart knows that many times you yourself have cursed Others. Have you ever heard someone talking about you behind your back and your initial reaction? But I imagine, if you think about it, you also have done the same to others. Why is it that when someone else does us wrong, we want God to judge them, but when we do something wrong to others, we want his forgiveness? A college student the other day I was meeting for, at, for discipleship that I meet, I meet with this college student every other week, uh, to talk about what it means to follow God. And he texted me at one o'clock in the afternoon and said, I'm sorry, I overslept, which 
made me miss college. <laughs> I don't know how you sleep till one o'clock, but uh, it, it was okay. So I texted him back. Here's what I said. I said, if I'd never forgotten a meeting, then I could be upset. The reality is, All of us are sinners. And when you accept that you're a sinner, when you understand you're a sinner, you actually don't have to be defensive when others notice, right? It says here, do not take to heart all the things that people say lest you hear your servant cursing you. The reality is, if people know you, they're gonna know you're a sinner. There's an old phrase that says, no man is a hero to his valet. Now, I don't, I'm not rich enough to have a valet, but I know this, my kids and my wife know that I'm sinful. The people who know me best know that I am a sinner. In fact, this is one of the challenges of raising children to love the Lord. Because they're going to see that you are a sinner. And if you pretend you're not a sinner, then you're just going to show them that you're a hypocrite. One of the reasons a lot of adults struggle to attend church is because they saw their parents act like they had it all together at church but they witness the hypocrisy at home. One of the ways that you can raise godly children is when you sin to admit it and ask for forgiveness. But the reality is too many religions, too many philosophies, too many of us function with this idea that we are basically good instead of basically broken. Now, I think if you look at the evidence of the world, if you look honestly at your own motives, you will recognize that you are not good at heart. That's the phrase that I hear too often. When I share the gospel with people, I would say nine out of 10 times, I ask someone how they could stand before the Lord and enter heaven. They will say this, I'm a good person. And I'll say, well, what does it mean to be a good person? And they invariably say this well I've never killed anybody well that's a pretty low standard but then I was watching a documentary about prisoners in Angola prison in Louisiana on death row who have actually killed people and I listened to one of them say I'm good at heart see we grade ourselves on a curve we want to think That even though the impact of our actions demonstrates that we're sinners, because we don't wish that we were sinners, we must be essentially good. But the reality is this. If you and I were good enough to save ourselves, then we would, and we can't. If left up to us, if it is our righteousness that is going to get us into heaven, then we are all doomed. And we have fooled ourselves because technology is advancing that we think we are morally advancing. But the reality and the proof is, I think that we are getting less godly, not more. See, the gospel reminds us that none of us are good enough to save ourselves. And the one who is good enough, however, died to give us his righteousness. Tim Keller, who recently went to be in glory, said this, about the gospel. He says, you are more wicked than you ever dared believe. And yet you are more loved and accepted in Jesus Christ than you ever dared hope. This should cause us when we look at our sin and we look at the brokenness of the world should cause us to long for our righteous savior. Verse 29 of that passage in chapter seven says, see this alone I found that God made man upright 
but they have sought out many schemes. Isn't this the story of Genesis? That God created the first couple in the perfect garden to enjoy him, to worship him, to serve him forever. And yet, rather than rest in the provision and goodness of God, they chose to do their own thing, seek out their own wisdom, and we have followed in their footsteps ever since. God created a beautiful and good world that has been broken by sin. So we are left with this creation that is both beautiful and broken at once. It is what we would say good by design, but bad by direction. We see this all the time. Look at nature. You can go see a a sunset and recognize the beautiful handiwork of God. And then on the other hand, see a natural disaster and recognize that it is broken. My wife and I have the uh, painful but beautiful opportunity to be foster parents in the city of Philadelphia. And our foster son is beautiful in every way, but his situation is broken. On this side of eternity, there are moments of despair and moments of joy intermingled. So wise living allows us to grieve the brokenness and celebrate the beautiful. And for me, living in a place that often has brokenness right in my face all the time, I've learned that if you don't grieve the broken, you can't celebrate the beautiful. The way it's been explained to me, and I think this is true, is a lot of us like to uh, ignore the broken by saying all the good things that counteract it, right? You, if something really bad happens in your life, you're like, well, this bad happened, but this good, 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 good. Here, here's what I found you to do. You need to actually spend time grieving brokenness so that you can feel the beautiful. It's like, it's like hot water and cold water. If you put them together, all you get is lukewarm water. You become numb to the beauty of God's world. I wonder when the last time you actually grieved the lostness in your city, when you actually grieved the brokenness in your family. Because when you start to feel the brokenness, you can also experience the beauty. Part of it is accepting the reality of what's going on. The world is good by design, but bad by direction. And so we have to, we'll look in chapter eight, learn to live with limitations. Look at verse 14 through verses 14 through 17 in Ecclesiastes chapter 8. It says this, there is a vanity that takes place on earth that there are righteous people to whom it happens according to the deeds of the wicked and there are wicked people to whom it happens according to the deeds of the righteous. I said that this also is vanity and I commend joy for man has nothing better under the sun but to eat and drink and be joyful for this will go with him in his toil through the days of his life that God has given him under the sun. When I applied my heart to know wisdom and to see the business that is done on earth, how neither day nor night do one's eyes see sleep, then I saw all the work of God, that man cannot find out the work that is done under the sun. However much man may toil in seeking, he will not find it out. Even though a wise man claims to know, he cannot find it out. The beginning of this section highlights One of the most difficult questions that we ask of God in all of life. Why do good things happen to bad people and bad things happen to good people? It's the same question the psalmist Asaph asked in Psalm 73. When I look around, I look at 
my life? Why am I doing good, God, if I'm not being rewarded when all of these other heathens are doing bad things and they're getting rewarded? And it, it, all, it already shows us how so many of us approach God with a corrupt understanding. First of all, it assumes that we're good. We just learn none is righteous, not one. And yet we go, God, I'm, I'm good. But secondly, it looks at God as a sort of divine ATM from which we can withdraw blessings if we deposit enough good works. So many Christians are functionally living according to works-based righteousness. I see it in my community all the time. Things go badly. I need to start going to church. I need to take communion. Pastor, will you pray for me or bless me or anoint me? Then things go good and we're gone. Because God, for many of us, is not the one we love. He's the one we use to get what we want. Because if we really dig down deep, a lot of us only love ourselves. If you only obey God to get blessings, then you don't love God. You love you. You're using God rather than loving him. And the great commandment is that we would love the Lord our God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength. This is true in our marriages too. If you only love your spouse when they make you happy, you only love yourself. But if you love God, you are not worried about what temporal things you get because the great end of loving God is you get God. So he says, look, we have limits, verse 16. When I applied my heart to know wisdom and to see the, the business that is done on the earth, how neither day nor night do one's eyes see sleep. Then I saw all the work of God that man cannot find out the work that is done under the sun. However much man may toil in seeking, he will not find it out. Even though a wise man claims to know he cannot find it out. A basic key to living for God is the simple but difficult reminder that he is God and you are not. He knows best, you do not. We remind ourselves in foster parenting this every night. God loves our kids more than we do. So we have to trust him. Every one of us has limits. The smartest person in the world with all the education and experience still only knows a fraction of a fraction of all there is to know. So the big question for us is, will we accept those limits and trust God or are we going to keep trying to do it ourselves? I heard someone say this phrase and I sort of identify with this phrase about ministry. They said, I'd rather, I'd rather rust out then burn out, and as soon as I heard it, it sounded like someone who never burned out. Sounds good, but the reality is God doesn't want us to rust out or burn out. He wants us to rest in him. If you were to read Psalm 127, and you were to ask yourself, what is a sign of godliness? If you read Psalm 127, it is not Bible knowledge. It's not righteous works. It's not working hard. Psalm 127 says one of the keys to godliness is sleep. Amen. 
Right, what did Jesus do when things went bad? He took a nap. That's what I'm trying to be like, Jesus. Here's why sleep is a sign of godliness. Because if I'm asleep, then who's watching? Who's managing my affairs? Who's checking to make sure all of my tasks are done? Who's working? Who's protecting? God is. God never sleeps nor slumbers. When I'm asleep, I cannot protect myself. I am vulnerable. I am trusting that God is in control. At 3.30 in the morning, God has not appointed you or I to worry about our finances, our job, our family, our health, or anything else. He's called us to sleep. Unless you're working third shift and you sleep during the day and all that stuff. God wants us to trust him. And that can be true of our time when we're awake. We are called to trust him, to turn to him. Too many of us turn to everything else to cope but God. And here's the truth. If you don't acknowledge your weakness, God will humble you. If you don't humble yourself, you'll be humbled. I've had folks in my life as a pastor who thought it was their God-given purpose to point out every sin that I've ever committed. Now, I will warn you that we already have an accuser of the brethren. You don't want his job, and you don't want to be on his team. But the reality is, even people with bad motives are opportunities for you to recognize your limitations and your weaknesses. However bad a sinner these folks might think I am, let me tell you, I'm worse. They only see the outside. I know what's really going on. So I can either be defensive and try to justify myself, or I can admit my weakness and depend on God, but we don't like to do that. There's a concept that counselors use that I find very helpful when we think about this. It is this concept of our true self and our false self. The way I would explain it is our true self is who we really are, and our false self is our resume self. Probably your church, but surely that until I accept the broken parts of myself, I don't actually experience his healing in the most important areas of my life. You know, even confession to others. My, my kids have this skill when they're in trouble of trying to figure out how much they can confess to and move on without telling me the whole truth. You might have that ability too. I know I do. But here's the reality. Scripture tells us that we are to crucify our sin nature, but you can't eliminate things you find in yourself that you don't first accept as part of yourself. That would be denial, not crucifixion. You can't surrender what you don't first own. And that includes an, an honest acknowledgement of your sin. One pastor said this, Jesus meets us where we are, not where we pretend to be. A lot of us have not experienced the true freedom of Christ because we are unwilling to acknowledge the brokenness in our own hearts that we need to take to him. Again, quoting Tim Keller, you can tell I'm a little bit on a Tim Keller kick these days. He says, to be loved but not known is superficial. To be known and not loved is our greatest fear. But to be fully known and truly loved is what God has given us in the gospel. If you think the path to joy is just to tell God a few things that you need him to fix, but you don't acknowledge your 
deep brokenness, then you're withholding his joy in the parts of your life that you need him the most. And a healthy Christian community would be the place where you can go and tell others those broken things. And rather than push you away, they would come beside you and take you to the cross. And the beauty of the gospel reminds us that if God is our strength, then we do not need to fear our weakness. So a mature Christian life is needing Jesus more, not less. See, weakness is a feature, not a bug. Godliness is not independence, it's dependence. That's why Jesus says, but many who are first will be last and the last first. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 1, but God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. We certainly like to be used by God, but none of us want to be the foolish ones. 2 Corinthians 12, but he said to me, Paul, my grace is sufficient for you for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then, I am content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. Apparently, God has designed his kingdom to value service rather than strength, dependence rather than autonomy, and weakness rather than power. My roommate in college was uh, in the Army ROTC. He's now an officer in the, in the Army. And in the, I, I witnessed in his... ROTC days that he had to pass certain physical and mental tests to make it into the military. Now, I was speaking to another member of the army that said those might have gotten easier lately. I don't know. I'll leave that to, for you to figure out. But the reality is you have, to be, you have to meet a certain standard of fitness to make it in. John Piper says this. He says, the difference between Uncle Sam and Jesus Christ is that Uncle Sam won't enlist you unless you are healthy and Jesus won't enlist you unless you are sick. What is God looking for in the world? Assistance? No, the gospel is not a help wanted ad. It is a help available ad. God is not looking for people to work for him, but people who let him work mightily in and through them. If we're reminded of anything, it's that when we are confronted by our limitations, it's we are called to depend on God. We want to be part of something that can only be explained by the power of God. So if that's the case, then we can walk with faith in the face of uncertainty. Look at chapter 11, verses 1 through 10. He says, cast your bread upon the waters, for you will find it after many days. Give a portion to seven or even to eight, for you know not what disaster may happen on earth. If the clouds are full of rain, they empty themselves on the earth. And if a tree falls to the south or to the north, in the place where the tree falls, there it will lie. He who observes the wind will not sow, and he who regards the clouds will not reap. As you do not know the way the spirit comes to the bones in the womb of a woman with child, so you do not know the work of God who makes everything. In the morning, sow your seed, and at evening, withhold not your hand, for you do not know which will prosper, this or that, or whether both alike will be good. Light is sweet, and it is pleasant for the eyes to see the sun. So if a person lives many years, let him rejoice in them all, but let him remember that the days of darkness will be many. All that comes is vanity. Rejoice, O young man, in your youth, and let your heart cheer you in the days of your youth. 
Walk in the ways of your heart and the sight of your eyes. But know that for all these things, God will bring you into judgment. Remove vexation from your heart and put away pain from your body for youth and the dawn of life are vanity. First thing I think I noticed when I read this was a strange statement. Cast your bread upon the waters for you will find it after many days. And then I looked it up among commentators and they all say, we don't know, which is fun. So we're just as smart as the commentators. But the context shows us the general idea of what's going on is that if you wait until you are in control and have a certain understanding of the future, you will never follow God. We are called not to know what's gonna happen, but to walk in obedience. Really, we are called to risk trusting that God knows the future. Risk is the method that God uses to display our faith. If you are worried about how you're gonna pay the bills, then what do you do? You hoard your money. But if you trust that God is going to provide, you generously give your money. I remember sitting in an elder meeting. I'm no longer an elder of Nansman River, so I'm going to break confidence. And we had some money that we had to figure out what to do with. And I remember Dalton Carraway saying, we need to spend it on mission because we don't even know if we'll be here tomorrow. Right? Too often, we only follow God if we know things are going to work out the way we think they should work out. That's not faith. What would it look like to follow God from a posture of faith and not fear? When we decided to plant a church, I take that back, when God sent us to plant a church in Philadelphia in a tough neighborhood, a place very different from uh, where we lived for nine years here in North Suffolk, some of you have visited there, you can attest. When he sent us there, there are no guarantees. There were no guarantees about my children's education. There's no guarantees about my family's safety. But we decided that if God calls us, we would rather strike out swinging than to watch the pitch go by. And as I talk to people, I notice that this is often the case when it comes to obeying God. We have what we call paralysis by analysis. We sit there and we watch and we think and we wonder and we strategize and we never take a step of faith. We criticize Peter for looking at the waves and sinking when he's the only one that got out of the boat. What decision would you make for Christ if you were not afraid? Then do that. If you wait here, verses four and six, if you wait until you can control the weather to plant your crops, then you won't plant anything and you won't receive a reward. That's why the New Testament tells us we walk by faith, not by sight. I think some of us have read the story of Gideon wrong. Gideon is an example of how not to respond to God, yet God uses him anyways. Remember, he's like, I'm gonna put out a fleece, it's gonna be, the fleece is wet, the ground is dry, keep it that way or vice versa. And then it, then it happens, he's like, okay, God, let's do it the other way. No, you shouldn't need a fleece in the first place because you have the more certain word of God. And here's what I'm learning slowly, painfully, but certainly, the more uncertain life is, the more I know God is the only one who is certain. 
If we waited till we could predict the perfect outcome of foster care, we would never be foster parents. But there are 4,500 children in the foster system in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. And we've read the book of James that says true religion is caring for orphans and widows. If you wait until you know the future, then you are putting yourself in the position of God. And you are not God. Verse eight, so if a person lives many years, let him rejoice in them all, but let him remember that the days of darkness will be many. All that comes is vanity. When we trust God, we can enjoy good seasons of life. We can endure bad seasons of life. We can be grateful for the good days and the bad days because we know they're all in God's hands. Enjoy those good days. Grieve those bad days. But in all of it, know this, verse nine, but know that for all these things, God will bring you into judgment. There is an end. The brokenness of this world is not forever. One of my favorite things about traveling on mission trips around the world, especially to poor countries, is when they sing about heaven, it is their hope. They sing longing for the day when they see Christ face to face. Don't dwell too much on your present situation because there is a day coming, a day that is more real than anything you experience here when God will judge the living and the dead, when the wrong will be made right, when everything that is broken will be restored, when everything that is wicked will be punished. There is a final judgment and it's certain. Right? Isn't that what we read in, or isn't that what I read in chapter 12? For God will bring every deed into judgment with every secret thing, whether good or evil. And, and notice this God will not just judge what you do wrong, He will judge what you fail to do right. But God's story will turn out how He wants. And what I'm learning, what I'm what I'm understanding currently at our church in Philadelphia, we're preaching through the book of Exodus and we're learning that God does not save us from judgment. He saves us through judgment. Judgment is coming. And it's either going to be bad or it's going to be good because it's either going to be taken on Jesus or received by us. We either worship Jesus or we face his righteous judgment. Romans 2, Paul says this, or do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance, but because of your hard and impenitent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself in the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. God is kindly inviting you to escape judgment by repenting. But if you harden your heart, you will be judged. See, salvation comes through judgment on the cross. God doesn't ignore or bypass our sin. Rather, Jesus takes the judgment for our sin on himself so that we can be saved. Jesus substitutes himself and takes our judgment. He bears our judgment in our place. He was judged so that you could be saved. And if you would admit your sin, and turn to him, you will receive his righteousness and he will take your judgment. 
And when you receive him, when you trust in him, I'm not talking about temporary relief from your problem or a superficial sorrow that you got caught. I'm talking about this deep thankfulness for the grace of God and the desire to follow him everywhere he goes until he brings you home to glory. So back to my original point. Can we live with faith even in our broken world? I think the answer is clearly yes, because God has proven himself faithful. In Romans 8, Paul says this, he who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? We can walk with faith in a broken world because our savior was broken for us. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, it is very difficult to be honest about who we are. It is very difficult to admit that we are broken and that we need you. God, would you open our eyes to the truth of the gospel, that we are worse than we can imagine, but loved more than we could dare hope. God, would we accept the reality of our limitations so that we could depend wholly on Jesus. It is his obedience in our place. It is his sacrifice in our place that saves us and that we would live the rest of our lives for him. God, I pray if there's anyone in this room who has never placed their faith in Jesus, that today would be the day of their salvation. God, I pray if there's anyone in this room who has been stalling and obeying what you've called them to do, that today would be the day they took the step of faith. God, would you make us a people like Christ by your power and not our own. It's in Jesus' name we pray, amen.